This is Coping with Dystopia from Dare to be Grey. This is the show about finding ways to flip the script on our dark times. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and today we're coping with climate change. You're completely crazy. You're completely off track. You're out of your mind. And not only my family and friends said it, but the authorities. They said, are you, are you crazy? I went to the Port Authority over here in Rotterdam and they said, are you crazy? In our port? You, you want to do what? A farm in our port? That's Peter van Wingerden, and he might be completely crazy. He's Dutch. And like most Dutch people, he knows that he lives in a river delta, and that when the sea levels rise, Holland will inevitably be flooded. So he thought, flood or no flood, people still need to eat. So let's make a farm that floats. That's right, he created a floating farm. So we're going to find out the story behind his crazy idea in a few minutes. But first, Hannah and Jordi of Dare to be Grey are here with us. Hello, Hannah and Jordi. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. Nice to be here again. So, of course, today's show is called Coping with uh, Climate Change. And, you know, it, normally at this point in the show, I always say to you guys, uh, how bad is it? At this point, I don't even need to ask it. It's it's bad. I think we all know that it is really, really bad. And we have absolutely reached a climate global crisis point already. So normally we come in with all these facts and figures in episodes like these. But to be honest, we all know these numbers. We've been seeing peaks in graphs everywhere. And we know the reality. It's grim. It's going to get harder. And we're all going to die. No. I think it's important to note that we're not all going to die, Geordie, but there are going to be some countries that are going to be far worsely affected than others. And it tends to be those poorer countries that um, rich, more developed countries have caused effects to happen on. Yeah, I guess you're thinking of countries like Bangladesh, right? Or these uh, countries out, these small island nations out in the Pacific, for example, that are literally disappearing, Right. How much are sea levels rising by in this century? Like at the end of the century, how much are they going to rise by? By the end of this century, they could have risen by one to two meters, which is pretty, pretty insane. That's a lot. I mean, the Netherlands will be underwater. We know that already. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And so why don't we, I mean, okay, we said that we didn't want to talk about the, the facts and the figures too much, but it's, this is all about cutting global emissions right? Because that's at least the way that you can slow it all down. How, by how much do we need to cut emissions? Really, we need to be cutting the global emissions in half by 2030, which is less than eight years away. We're already halfway through 2022. It's not very far. And we really need to be reaching net zero by 2050 or sooner even. And that won't necessarily prevent all of this. It'll just either slow it down or, mm -hmm. or make it not quite as severe, right? I mean, either way, sea level is rising even as we speak. Oh, That's yeah, absolutely. Just that. and That's happening you now. You know, we're, we're always having these editorial meetings about coping with dystopia. We want people to leave with a better feeling. We want people to cope with this situation. But I think in our talks, we, we, we all discovered that this is probably the biggest dystopia we're facing as a planet right now, right? And I think if we look at the, the political um, gridlock we're facing with the Paris agreements that are not really being implemented, um, with loads of leaders uh, talking a whole lot about climate change, but not really doing things, um, you know, how do we get out of this? 
Well, um, one thing that is very key to note is that we have the knowledge and we have the technology to get out of this. But the, the issue has, seems to be that governments aren't really doing more things about it. Yeah, why not? I mean, we have the knowledge, we have the technology. Why aren't they doing more about it? I mean, that's the bit I don't get. Why not? It's a good question, Jonathan, and, and I wish I could answer it. Um, I, I would like to say, though, perhaps it is because it is the, the big companies, major companies that, you know, the, the governments are in cahoots with almost um, that are the ones that are responsible for, for greenhouse gas emission. You know, there's been only 100 companies are responsible for 71 percent of greenhouse gas em emissions since 1988. And the world's richest 1 percent of the population produce more than double the carbon emissions of the poorest half of the world. So perhaps these are just two points that could be contributing to the fact that the governments aren't doing anything about it. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't even want to get into the part where it's also self-defeating, right? Because if they don't do anything about it, it's just going to get worse. And it's like, not like they live on a different planet. You know, they're in, they're in with us on this. <laughs> so that's the part that I truly don't understand. Yeah. But but just because we aren't the ones that are causing the climate crisis, that we might not be part of these 100 companies or the world's richest 1%, we are the ones that need to be trying to tackle it. And that's why ideas like Peter's Floating Farm are so needed and are so valuable. And I'm really excited to hear his story. So maybe we just have to do it ourselves or look at grassroots solutions, um, small scale, local and I'm very happy that we got Peter to speak on this show because I live pretty much around the corner of his floating farm. And I always wondered what was happening there. No, it's really fascinating. And here's the thing. The floating farm is something that existed not to stop climate change, although that uh, Peter, his name is Peter van Vingere, he'd like nothing more, of course, than, than, than climate change to stop. But this farm exists really more as an acceptance of the fact that the water is coming. And if the water is coming, you still have to be able to live where you live. You just got to live on it instead, right? And that's why you build a farm that floats. So let's go back to our guest. He got sick of hearing about climate change. He got sick of hearing about sea level rise. And he decided to do something about it. My name is Peter van Wingerden. I'm the founder and CEO of the first farm in the world on the water. It's called the Floating Farm. We are here actually in the port of Rotterdam, where we started the first farm in the world. Uh, I'm 61 years old and recently became grandfather. I have two boys and, uh, and my oldest son, he has become a father as well. So that is still an, an, an important shift in my life. And it's something that, that drives me to do something, what we are doing now for the future and the next generation. So here's how he got the idea. Peter was an engineer with large corporations like General Electric, and then he started his own company. He sold it and started traveling around the world. And the more he traveled, the more nervous he got about climate change. So Peter, as I explained before, is Dutch. And as such, he's really concerned about sea level rise because Holland is stuck on a giant river delta on the one hand and the rising North Sea on the other. And he says the Netherlands is actually a giant bathtub that will one day overflow. And that got him thinking about floating cities. 
So he traveled around to other big low-lying cities to see how they're handling climate change and sea level rise, cities like Shanghai, Hong Kong, and New York. In fact, Pater arrived in New York right after Superstorm Sandy's floods paralyzed the whole city's infrastructure in 2013. And people told him a lot of frightening stories, but there was one thing that frightened him more than any other. There was no food. Everything was empty. Supermarkets were empty. There was no fresh food. People were almost fighting for food. And it doesn't matter if you are really a billionaire or you live in the street. We need to have food every day, three times a day, preferably. But there was nothing. He thought, from nothing, you can make everything if it floats. And that gave birth to his life's work, the floating farm. The floating farm is a three-floor dairy farm situated buoyantly in Rotterdam's giant harbor right on the edge of the city. Its location is the point. Sea level rise is no problem for the floating farm because it floats. Transporting food to the city isn't an issue because the farm is in the city. Getting food to his cows isn't an issue because they eat the city's leftovers and their products. All of them including the cow patties, go right back to town as fertilizer. Peter was kind enough to show me around his farm. So now we're sort of just walking from your offices, and to my left, not floating, is a sort of a, a little grass field, and there's one, two, three, four, I'd say about 20 heifers, heavy with udders. They are large of udder. <laughs> yeah, so half of the number of cows are inside in the farm and half are outside. So they can choose themselves. So it's a free-range cow. They can choose to be inside or outside. So they don't have to feed themselves over here on the meadow. They have their feedstock inside. There's a milking robot inside. But if they want to play and romance a little bit, they go outside. <laughs> and to my right, I see almost like a floating pontoon island. And on top of it are solar panels, completely covered in solar panels. So I guess that's where most of the electricity comes from. Yes, correct. So this is our floating solar panel and it's cooled by the water. So the yield of the solar panel is much higher than when it's on the roof because a solar panel needs to be cooled down. So the water cools it down. So we have a really high yield of energy from the solar panels on the water. And then, of course, right next to that is the farm itself. And it's uh, mostly made of a sort of a gray, looks like uh, aluminum or steel girdered material, and uh, some wood panels. And the, the top is covered up with plastic uh, tarps in a sort of arch shapes as a roof. And of course, in there, connected by a metal bridge, are dairy cows. On the roof that you mentioned, actually, we collect the rainwater and that goes back as drinking water for the cows. So we're walking on the footbridge. This is terrifying. Because <laughs> you can see right through it, it's just a grid. And here we are into the farm and here are the cows. Hi, ladies. They're oh, the eating, cows are interested in me. They're smelling your microphone. Every time I bring the microphone over, they, they want to have a sniff. <laughs> she just licked the microphone. It's. <laughs> she licked it. She look, just licked oh, the there. microphone. It's now look at, look covered in, in cow saliva. <laughs> so over there, you see our milking robot. So everything is automated over here. So the feed comes in over here, automated. The milking robot is automated. So this whole process is fully automated. So the cows milk themselves? They do. Is that normal? 
most of the farms have these machines now. So it's being fully automated. And we have a manure robot who collects the manure. They dump, the manure robot dumps it in a hole and there we turn it into fertilizer again. So also that is completely automated. That's so amazing. Let's have, a, let's have a look downstairs how, sure. how we turn this into dairy. Okay. So let's go, let's go to the processing part. So we split this part of the building into a, a hygienic part and a non-hygienic part. So let's go to the hygienic part first. Okay. Let me show you around how we, where we produce, process the milk into dairy products. I have to give you some shoes. Aha. Uh -huh. To wear. Okay, so I'm getting oh. overshoes. Yeah. For my, uh, to keep my shoes, uh, I guess to keep uh, them hygienic. Uh, okay. Oh, wow. So clearly we're coming down to what are the well-known cheese. These are Gouda cheese wheels and they're ripening down here. And this is, this is under sea level here, right? We are three meters below sea level right now. So this is the space where we ripen the cheese. So upstairs we process the milk into all kinds of dairy products. And one of them is cheeses. And this is our experimental zone about the tasting, about the ripening time, about the acid, about the salt that we all play with, about the herbs inside our cheeses. So this is our cheese ripening room over here. Mm. Very creamy. Really creamy cheese. Yeah, it's really creamy. Mm. Because um, the milk from our cows is really high protein and high fat. Yeah, you can taste that. And how many cheeses do you make in a... I don't know. Well, we only, have, we only have 40 cows, so we need to decide every day what part of it we, we process into yogurt, what part of it we process into pasteurized milk, and what part of it we process it into cheeses. So we make, uh, I think, approximately 20 cheeses per week of each about 5 kilogram. So I think we make about 100 kilogram of cheese per week. So I'm going to show you one more thing that is below the waterline. Okay. Now we're going down again. So basically now I'm seeing a sort of a, a what, what, I don't even know how to describe it. It's almost like uh, fish tanks. <laughs> They're almost like big giant fish tanks with beautiful pink colored one and a blue one and a sort of a pale grapefruit colored one. They're nice. What are you, what are you doing here? We do here the testing of our vegetable growth system. Uh, this is our testing area. So this is uh, where we test the equipment for our second floating farm that will be next door, where we will produce 1,000 square meter of growth area for vegetables and herbs um, with these machines. So it's fully lead controlled. It's below the water line. So this is the new greenhouse, as we call it. It's not on top of the land, but it's below the sea level. So we're testing all kinds of several herbs and, and, and lettuces inside these, these small containers. Which are all stacked one on top of the other. Amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. Peter says the farm has private investors and this year, for the first time, it will break even. The idea is a proof of concept to show people all around the world that it can be done. And most importantly, for this farm to work, it needs the city and the city needs it. It's a circular farming. So it's completely part of the city. So the feedstock for the cows comes from the city. They upgrade it in proteins like dairy. They upgrade it in manure. And that is a fertilizer. And everything goes back to the city again. So it's completely circular. So our former minister always called us the most circular farm in the Netherlands uh, because our footprint to the rest of the world is almost zero. 
We collect rainwater, we collect restrooms as feedstock for the cows, so everything goes back to the city. So your cows are there, and they have to be fed, and they produce manure, and they produce milk. So how does the cycle of farm to city, back to farm, back to city, back to farm, how does that work? So what we need to run the farm uh, are three elements. That is feedstock for the cows, that is water for the cows, and energy for the farm. So the feedstock for the cows for 80% comes from the city. To give you an example, we collect bread, we collect grass from, from football stadiums and golf courses, we collect orange peels from the retail. So if they press orange juice, the peels do not go to the incinerator, but it comes to our cows. So we collect all kinds of restroom that normally goes to the incinerator every day. Every day we burn it. Inside the cows, because they eat well, it. <laughs> <laughs> now, now we burn it inside the cows because they eat it. But regularly it goes to the incinerator. And now we collect it from the city. It goes to our cows and they upgrade it into dairy and manure. And the dairy we process into yogurt, milk, uh, buttermilk, butter, cheese. And the manure we process into fertilizer that goes also back to the parks and the gardens in our city. So the feedstock comes from the city. We collect rainwater and we filter river water that goes as drinking water to the cows. And we are producing energy with floating solar panels. And in one month, we will have the first floating windmill over here as well. So then we have solar. A, a wind turbine. It's a wind turbine, but it is a small scale turbine because our philosophy over here is that we need to move from this economy of scale thinking to economy of city thinking. So we have been grown up with this idea, it should be large scale, economy of scale. And if you want to produce something large scale, you have to find space and that is outside the cities, far, far away. So then you're depending on transportation. That is the old model. We need to think in economy of cities. It's happening inside cities. So you need to design small scale, uh, lightweight, sustainable, attractive for people to work with. So it's a complete different thinking of designing. And that's what we're doing over here. That also means that you cannot create any pollution. So what do you do with the manure? We upgrade it to fertilizer, so we split the manure in dry matter and into urine. The urine, we make clean water of the urine. You see here a bottle with clean water. This is clean water. This is originally urine from the cows. And the manure, we press into fertilizer in pallets that goes back to the city again. You can also see here... Can I? Is it drinkable? Could I drink that? Because now we use it as irrigation water for our plants. So if we do an extra filter step, you can drink it as well. But here you see this pellets, and this is manure. So we made. So I'm just looking at what look like pellets, uh, yeah. like big, big, large pellets that you would use. What do you use them for? They're like you know dark brown. So I guess it's manure. <laughs> so it's organic fertilizer. So it's not artificial fertilizer. So many cities in the world, uh, citizens work with artificial fertilizer to give to the plants. It's one of the worst things for the world. Artificial fertilizer we should work with organic fertilizer. And this is organic fertilizer. Right. So yeah. can I pick one up? Can I pick one sure, up? Sure, sure. Yeah. You can take it and use it for your garden or your balcony garden or whatever. It's... I'll give it a try. My wife will love it. She loves it when I hand her a big old cup of poo. <laughs> well, it's healthy for the soil. It's healthy for the plants. And it's healthy for the planet to do it like this. Yeah. 
And what about, because now I hear the, I hear the environmentally conscious people saying, yeah, but cows, methane, they're farts. What do you do about that? Yeah, like human beings, they fart as well. So we produce, as human beings, we produce CO2 and methane, and cows does the same. But the difference is that cows produce this from the organic food they first have eaten. So they do not produce this from themselves. So they eat the organic food and change this into CO2 and methane. And the organic food collects CO2 and methane. So the grass first collects CO2 and methane, turn it into oxygen. Then the cow eats this grass, this organic food, and produces CO2 and methane again that comes back to the grass. So this is completely neutral as a circle. It's important that they, they do this. So if they could produce more methane than, than they have eaten, we would have created a methane machine. But that's not the case. And I guess really the big question is because in the beginning, people called you crazy. Are people still calling you crazy? Uh, not anymore. Why not? We are being visited from all over the world. We have about 40 to 50 groups again from Asia to the U.S. They come here to listen to our story and ask us, can you help us to solve the same problem we still have? So we're not that, well, we do not not looked at being stupid anymore, but maybe, well, I don't want to say brilliant, but it's a solution. And many cities are dealing with these challenges. How do I feed my citizens in a sustainable, circular way? Vindication. How does that feel? Really good. How good? <laughs> well, you know, we're passionate about what we're doing. You have to be passionate about what you do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Forget we. How do you feel? <laughs> I've, I've, I'm feeling great. I'm feeling honored. So this weekend I fly to Dubai. We're talking to the minister for the climate conference next year in Dubai. So many cities are looking to these challenges of food security and climate change. And I love to discuss with people and citizens and city developers, ministers, architects, how to implement that locally. You know, uh, Peter, uh, a lot of people, and, and probably people who are listening to this show, hear about all the problems in the world and they feel terrible about it and they feel powerless. They feel powerless to do something. It's probably one of the great existential crises of our time is how many things are going on and a general sense of powerlessness. Do you feel powerless? No. Most people sit around, they complain, they whine, I can't do anything about this. And you were like, nope, fuck it. I'm going to do something about it. Why you? Everybody can do something about it. Everybody can look around and say, okay, I need to do something for myself, for my friends, for my family, and for especially the next generation. We have to do it now, today. Don't wait and do something for what you can do yourself. You can collect rainwater. You can give rainwater to the plants. You can stop throwing away stuff like if it is nothing. You can do stories on schools. You can ask your parliament to have discussions on climate change. You can ask your broadcasting station, make a program, broadcast it for the young children between 5 or 6 p.m. You can do small steps at your city level, at your country level, at your broadcasting stations. Um, do something. Tell the story. Create awareness that we need to change and act right now. So that was actually, remember I said five things that wow. you can tell people to do right now? That was like seven. <laughs> wow. I strongly believe that it starts with yourself. You need to be motivated and strongly believe that we need to do something. We need to do something, not for today, but for the day after. 
and for the next gen. We need to do it now. I, I mean, our children will ask our generation, were you not aware of the situation? It's getting worse and worse. What did you do 20 years ago or 30 years ago? Where were you when it happened? And what did you do? And then you say, oh, nothing. I, I just kept on going. I, I didn't see the problem. Come on. We know the problem. And we all can act right now. We all can act today. Write a letter to your city. Write a letter to your country. Write a letter to the broadcasting stations. Write a, write a letter to the parliament. Why not have an one hour every week in the parliament where we can discuss and debate about climate change with school children, with everybody in the parliament, the heart of the country. And let's involve entire society with it, young people, older people, everybody, and broadcast it to the country. How difficult could it be? If you're thinking about the person who would be listening to this show, a frustrated person, a person who feels paralyzed by what's going on, what's the one thing you could say to them to give them hope? Well, I strongly believe that the world will change and uh, we can create a much more healthy environment, healthy air, healthy oceans, healthy rivers for the next generation. And that starts with yourself. So write a letter to your friends and say, as of today, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to do it different. I'm going to collect rainwater. I'm going to write to my citizens and to my city that we want to have more canals. Why, where are the canals in the city? Why did we turn them into, into streets and to real estate? Why did we did that? Why, do, why are we concrete, concrete, putting concrete in the world instead of green? Uh, let's, let's stop changing earth into concrete. Why are we doing that? Should we be scared? Give them hope. You're scaring me. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are so many solutions and opportunities. And uh, no, so, so I'm, I'm very positive for the, for the future. That, that's for sure. Uh, and everybody should be positive on this one. Why? Because there are so many solutions. It should not be run and should not be uh, led by the large companies and driven by money or shareholders' value. No, it's not about that. It's about nature. Nature is the most powerful thing we have, and we need to maintain that. And we're happy to see flowers and trees and canals, and that's, that's what we need to look at. And cows. And obviously cows. <laughs> and our next farm will be vegetables. So we are starting soon to construct the second floating farm over here in the port next door where we will produce healthy herbs and vegetables. Are there going to be other floating farms around the world soon? I hope so. We are uh, starting to travel again and talking to cities. So we're now talking to cities in the Middle East and into Asia. There will be some more in the Netherlands as well. So yes, we are expanding. Thank you. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Peter from Vingerden, a man with a dream. And, you know, normally we ask our guests just to give five good ideas about how you can cope with something. I think he gave us like 10. That was so great. Thank you so much, Peter. Absolutely excellent. So many points that we can we can learn from and, and um, try to do ourselves. No, absolutely. And I think this just proves that local impact is important. Local ideas can, well, be, make a difference in, uh, in society. But uh, important things first. Jonathan, how's your microphone doing? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the mic's fine. I had to wash it. It was disgusting. I had to wash it like maybe three times to get it all out. But here's the upside. And you're probably not aware of this because I know I wasn't aware of it. But cow breath, not all that smelly. Well, how lucky. And it was good because I had to keep interviewing him with the, the mucus on the mic during the interview. But he didn't seem to care. 
I mean, he spends all day with the cows, so. <laughs> he had actual cow uh, on, on the table that we were sitting at. We were talking, and I didn't realize it. But he had, like, a, a, a bunch of, like, uh, bowls out. And the bowls were sort of filled with pellets. And that, of course, was cow dung pellets that were being used as fertilizers. He just had them spread all over the table. Hey, you want some? You know, and he hands me, like, a big old cup. Take them home. <laughs> Yeah, no, there. Are, and I went afterwards. You should probably also know this to the store. There's a store that you can go to afterwards where they sell a lot of the dairy products, including butter and cheese. And I bought all those things. And you know what? They really, and this is not me just endorsing it, they really, it is better than you could get from the supermarket. It is more delicious. It would be so great to visit. And I mean, it's only around the corner for me as well, not too far from Utrecht. So, Jordi, I think we should we should take a trip there and, and go meet Peter for ourselves. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I can see it in front of me, cities with floating farms everywhere. It does make a lot of sense, doesn't it? It's the future. It's the future for sure. Yeah. Well, as you as you know, I mean, one of the reasons why we had to end our interview, as I think you pointed out, was that he was headed off to Dubai. So people are actually interested in his floating farm. So it may actually happen, Jordi. Yeah. Thank you, you guys. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks for taking the time to visit the floating farm, Jonathan. Coping with Dystopia is a production of Dare to Be Grey. That's grey with an E. Find out more about us and check out our inspiring stories at daretobegrey.com, where you can also tell us what you think about what you heard and even suggest a topic for us to talk about. This podcast is made possible with a grant from the Rights, Equality, and Citizenship Program of the European Commission. I'm Jonathan Goubert. This is Coping with Dystopia, and we hope you cope just a little better. Thanks for listening.